My subject tonight is life and death, what God thinks about life and death. We'll begin our study with the 55th of Isaiah, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now notice God is comparing, or rather contrasting here, his thoughts and our thoughts. He says they're not the same. Now which do you think ought to change his mind? You think God ought to change his mind? Do you know there are millions of people in this world that are trying to get God to change his mind? Have you ever stopped to think that much of what is called religion is devoted to an endeavor to get God to change his mind? Right. That's the way the heathen do. The heathen go to their temples. You've seen them over there, haven't you, brother? In India. They go there by the thousands and the millions, and they do all sorts of things and pray all sorts of prayers, put themselves through various tortures even, make all sorts of sacrifices in an endeavor to get God or the gods. Many of them have the plural idea. But the point is... They are endeavoring to get the deity to change its mind, change its mind. Well, you and I believe, at least in one part of our minds, that all that is futile, fruitless, that it can't accomplish anything and would be too bad if it could. We believe what the Bible says, I am the Lord, I change not, Malachi 3.6. And he adds, therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Our hope is in the unchangeable character of God. What a strange universe we would have, friends. If God would do something today because of the whims of some individual and tomorrow another should be more earnest, engage in greater intercession, and he should change because of their ideas and petitions. Life would be very uncertain, wouldn't it? Now, God says that his thoughts are not like our thoughts. Now, that does not mean that it's impossible for us ever to learn to think as God thinks. Paul tells us in Philippians, the second chapter, in the fifth verse, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We're to have the mind of Christ. We're to think as God thinks. That's a process of training and education, transformation, but certainly, when we reach the place that we think as God thinks, our thoughts will be as different from the world around us as God says his thoughts are different from our thoughts now. Is that correct? Yes. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And eventually, everybody in the universe is going to recognize that. There will be a, a unanimous agreement that God knows what he's doing, that he has known all along. Now, let's see if we can look at a few examples of how God's thoughts are different from man's thoughts. You remember the prophet Elijah out there under the juniper tree, prayed a certain prayer. Do you remember what that prayer was? O oh Lord, do what? Take away my life. 
for I am not better than my fathers. Elijah wanted to what? To die. Did God want him to die? No. He wanted him to live. He wanted him to never die. Was Elijah that day under the juniper tree thinking like God? No, he wasn't. He was praying, and he was praying to do what? To die. And God said, Elijah, no. No, my plan for you is not for you to die at all. Did Elijah ever die? Where is he now? How did he get there? He went there in a chariot of fire. Did he ever die? Never die. Think of it, friend. And yet he's the man that prayed what? He prayed to die. One of the few men in the Bible of whom that's recorded. Do you see what I mean, that God's thoughts are not like our thoughts? Now let's take another man, Moses. He prayed about this problem of life and death, too, and he prayed to live. You remember that, don't you? He said, Oh, Lord, let me live and go over the Jordan and see that goodly land and the mountain and Lebanon and all that. And God said, What? No, Moses, you're going to what? You're going to die. You're going to die. Elijah prayed to die. God said, no, Elijah, you're going to live and never die. Moses prayed to live, and God said, no, Moses, you've got to, to die. And Moses was insistent about it. He didn't stop with once. He kept right after the Lord on the matter until finally God told him what? Don't ask me anymore. You've got to die. Now, of course, we understand that God took no pleasure in the death of the Moses. We understand that God would have been very happy if he'd never had to die. God wanted him to live all right. But under the circumstances, don't forget that thought, under the circumstances, it was the best thing for Moses to what? Yeah. To die. That's the way God looked at it. And yet in all that, God had a mysterious providence. And while he didn't save him from dying, he did save him from death. You remember that, don't you? He didn't save him from dying, but he saved him from death. Jesus came down, and although challenged by Satan, he disputed about the body of Moses, and Christ brought him forth from the grave, took him to heaven. Very soon after, he laid down his life there at the top of Pisgah on the mount. And where is he now? He's in heaven. And he's been there for a long time. And so death reigned from Adam to Moses. Romans 5.14 well, what was there about the experience of Moses that broke that reign of death? Why, Moses was the first one that ever went into the grave and came through and came out. Moses did. Do you think Moses was satisfied after he got to heaven? Yes. By the way, did those two men, Elijah and Moses, ever meet? Do we have at least one proof that they met? Where, where was that? It was on that mount. 
was that part of the land that Moses had wished so much that he could get into and put his foot on? Did he finally get there? Yes, he got there. Wonderful prayer. You know, there's no sincere prayer that's ever lost. But God has his ways of answering our prayers. And I think Moses and Elijah both have been thankful now for many years that God answered their prayers according to his thoughts instead of according to their thoughts. What do you think? That's right. That's right. And so I come to this question. How can death ever be the best thing that can happen to a person? How can it? Well, first in studying that, I ask the question... Before I ask, how can it be, I simply echo the question, can it? Yes. I'll read you a little statement here in Medical Ministry, page 17. Just a little sentence, less than two lines, but it'll bear a great deal of study, meditation. Some people won't know how to fit this sentence into their building. They haven't made room for it. Their temple isn't big enough. They'll have to tear down some of their building blocks, their little playhouse, you know. They're going to put this one in and get a bigger foundation. There won't be room for it. And then may I tell you this, friends, in dealing with references, never chisel the reference to fit your building. The time will come when you'll need the block just as big as God made it. It'd be too bad if you chiseled it all up so it's only half as big as... God made it. You need the full reference, the full statement, the full truth, in other words, of every statement that God has ever made. I remember hearing our Bible teacher at the medical college, Elder R.S. Owen, say that years before, in his study of the Bible, he came to a text that he couldn't understand at all. And the more he studied it, the less he understood it, and he finally almost wished it wasn't in the Bible. But he finally concluded that there was nothing for him to do but just to let it alone for the, while, for the time being, and he went on with his study of other texts, other scriptures. And finally, a long time afterward, he was studying along a certain line of thought, putting texts together as he did. He was a wonderful Bible student. As he was getting various texts together, the thought came into his mind, now if I just had a scripture that said so-and-so, it fit right in here. And then it dawned upon him. It was that very text, that very scripture that years before he had almost wished wasn't in the Bible. Now he was glad it was in the Bible. He found out where it fitted. He put it in and used it. Isn't that wonderful, brethren and sisters? And so if you don't know what to do with this statement that I'm about to read, don't try to whittle it or chisel it or use the saw on it or the plane or even sandpaper. It's all right just the way it reads. And I'm glad it's here, friends, for I'm dealing with some very practical things tonight, very practical. The statement is, some died in the days of Christ and in the days of the apostles, 
because the Lord knew just what was best for them. Now read it again. Some died in the days of Christ and in the days of the apostles because the Lord knew just what was best for them. You know, sometimes I hear expressions that sound like this. That if everybody, if all of our people were where they ought to be, we wouldn't have this thing of people getting cancer. At least if they did, they'd get healed. Did you ever hear expressions like that? They're not always worded the same way, but that's what it boils down to. That if we were only where we ought to be, then we'd see the miracles wrought and the sick raised up. But somebody says, well, Brother Frizzy, don't you believe that? Well, across the page on 16 is something that sounds just about like it, so I'll read it. If we will take hold of the Master, take hold of all the power he has given us, the salvation of God will be revealed. Let me tell you that the sick will be healed when you have faith to come to God in the right way. We thank God that we have the medical missionary work. There must be a reformation throughout our ranks. The people must reach a higher standard before we can expect the power of God to be manifested in a marked manner for the healing of the sick. Now that says almost what I said a while ago, doesn't it? But not quite. Not quite. Our difficulty is we read something and then we infer something. We infer something. We read that under the latter rain and the loud cry, miracles are going to be worked, the sick are going to be healed, and signs and wonders will follow the believers. And we infer from that. We were there now. That would be the answer to all of these problems. And we wouldn't have to have funerals. Instead, we would rejoice as one case after the other came to be a miraculous manifestation of God's power. Now, uh, we may have to think through some things here tonight, friends, and I think it very well that we do think through them. I call your attention to the simple statement here that even in the days when Jesus was on earth, some died. But that isn't all that it says. Of course, we know some died. But this says that the reason they died, that's what I want you to see, is because the Lord knew just what was best for them. That's the thing I want you to see. And it also says that it was in the days of the apostles. Now Christ left with his apostles in his church the power to work miracles in his name. Is that right? Did they do it? Yes. Did Peter and John go up and raise that lame man, help him to walk so that he leaped all around the temple? Did that happen? Did Peter go down there and raise Darkus from the dead? Did Paul raise a man from the dead? All that happened and thousands more of healings and miraculous manifestations. But some died. In the midst of all those mighty manifestations, 
right then and there when the power of God was being poured out as it had never been before and it had, as it has never been since, my friends. Right then and there, in the midst of all that, somewhat, they not only were sick, but they got so sick that they what? They died. And the reason they died, this says, wasn't because they lacked faith. It wasn't because somebody else lacked faith. There was plenty of faith. But they died because the Lord knew just what was best for them. And, and please linger on that little word, best. Best. It's hard to improve it. It's not the comparative, it's the what? Superlative. Superlative. How are you going to improve? Now, do you think like that? Naturally, we don't, friends. If you understand what I've just read, you are nearer thinking the thoughts of God than most people are. I must confess I'm just this human, friends. If anybody I love is lying sick and near the point of death, the thing I want is for God to heal them. Now, I'm just that human. I believe this because it says so. But I've been trying to, to understand it, to comprehend it, to get my little mind wrapped around at least one part of it. I think I need to. I think a number of us need to. We're in the time of the latter rain. Well, we've been there for a long time. And we're like people that come up to a railroad station and we say to the man at the railroad station, what time does the train to Chicago come through here? And he says it comes through at 1.15. Oh, it does? Yes. Comes through at 1.15? Yes. Well, uh, has it already come and gone? No, it hasn't come. Well, I thought you said it comes at 1.15. Well, it's supposed to come at 1.15. Hasn't gotten here yet. When's it going to get here? Not sure. It's overdue. Overdue. We've been in the time of the latter rain for many, many years. Is that true? Yeah. Is it here yet? Not in the sense in which inspiration presents in all its glorious, mighty power. We'll get that clear in a few weeks when we get into our studies on coming events. But my point is we're in the time of the latter rain. But we need to understand not only what the latter rain will do, but what it won't do, friend. And it will not confer immortality on people. That is reserved for the sounding of the trumpet, the appearing of Jesus in the clouds of heaven. That's what the Bible teaches, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 15th chapter, 51 to 55. This mortal must put on immortality sounding of the trumpet. And so the saints will still be mortal even during the latter rain and the loud cry. Is that right? And we need to understand that now, friends, because if we don't, when the latter rain falls and the loud cry is given, and we see this one being healed and that one being healed and this one perhaps raised from the dead, and then we gather around the bed of some loved one, that we think oh so much of and we pour out our hearts to God in prayer expecting that one to get up just like 50 others have and that one doesn't get up but instead goes down 
into the grave. We need to have such an understanding of God's will and God's word and God's way that we're not discouraged, either with God or with the experience of that individual. We need to have that very clear in our thinking. We need to weed out of our conversation all such expressions as this. Well, if people only had enough faith, that person would be healed. Some died in the days of Christ and in the days of the apostles because the Lord knew just what was best for them. Now, I'm going to try to study that. I don't expect to exhaust it, friends, and it's so different from our ordinary thinking that probably we can meditate upon it for a good many months without exhausting it. Turn now to the seventh of Ecclesiastes, the first verse. I raise the question, what is the purpose of life? Why do men die? When should men die? If ever. This says it was best for some people to die, and that's why they died, even when Jesus was here on earth. What is the purpose of life, and when should people die? Is there time to die? Yes, there is, friend. The third chapter of Ecclesiastes and the second verse says so. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to die. Did you ever hear a little child when 7 or 7.30 or 8 o'clock, whenever the appropriate time comes around, mother says, well, darling, it's bedtime now. Oh, mama, can't I stay up a little longer? Well, what happens then? Now, that depends, doesn't it, And there's been many a soul in this world that when heaven's time, bedtime, has come, many a soul has looked up to God and said, Oh, can't I wait a little longer before I go to bed? But if it's really heaven's time for bedtime, it's a good thing to go to sleep, friends. Did you know that? Do you remember that man Hezekiah? Must be an important story because it's one of the few things in the Old Testament that's told in three different books, the same story over. You can read it in Kings, you can read it in Chronicles, you can read it in Isaiah, it tells the story. Same one, three different times. You remember the story. Hezekiah fell sick. He was about to die and the prophet came to him and said, Hezekiah, set your house in order for you're going to die. What did Hezekiah do? Turned his face to the wall and he said, Father, can't I stay up a little longer? I'd hate to go to bed now. I don't want to go to sleep. And he prayed. He prayed. And he got so earnest and intense about it, I don't know that I can explain it all, but I'm under the impression that Hezekiah became so determined and anxious about the matter that if he died then he might have died in discouragement and God in his mercy and love said all right Hezekiah I'm going to add how much time 15 years to your life instead of going to bed at eight you can stay up till half past nine 
And probably Hezekiah, like a little child, said, Oh, goody, I'm so glad. Yes, he did. His psalm of praise is written there. He was just, as we would say, tickled. And well, he might be, as we would say. We probably all would if we'd been in his place. But do you know what happened during those next 15 years? He made the greatest mistakes of his life. He made the greatest mistakes of his life. I don't mean he lost his soul. As far as I know, he was saved. But it could be, friends, that it would have been better if his bedtime had been God's bedtime. Do you see what I mean? All right. I'll read you a comment on that. In volume two, I'm coming to my text here in Ecclesiastes, but I want to read something here in volume two, 148. We have united in earnest prayer around the sickbed of men, women, and children, and have felt that they were given back to us from the dead in answer to our earnest prayers. In these prayers, we thought we must be positive. And if we exercised faith, that we must ask for nothing less than life. We dared not say if it will glorify God, fearing it would admit a semblance of doubt. We have anxiously watched those who have been given back, as it were, from the dead. We have seen some of these, especially youth, raised to health, and they have forgotten God, become dissolute in life, causing sorrow and anguish to parents and friends, and have become ashamed to those who feared to pray. They live not to honor and glorify God, but to curse him with their lives of vice. We no longer mark out a way, nor seek to bring the Lord to our wishes. If the life of the sick can glorify him, we pray that they may live, nevertheless, not as we will, but as he will. Our faith can be just as firm and more reliable by committing the desire to the all-wise God and without feverish anxiety, in perfect confidence, trusting all to him. Oh, friends, I want to learn that. That's the simplicity of a little child. On a little child that's properly trained and loves mother and daddy, when daddy or mother say, darling, it's bedtime now, you know what the little one says? All right. Good night. Now I'll see you in the morning. That's trust. That's what God is looking for, my friends. Well, somebody says, then shall we not pray for the sick? Sure, pray for the sick. God told us to. Safe to do everything he said. But the same God that told us to pray for the sick told us, pray that his will might be done and to admit and not be apologetic about admitting that we don't know enough to know what God's will is in any case. Do you see what I mean, friend? All right. Now I come back to Ecclesiastes 7 and my question. What is the purpose of life anyway and what, when is it time to die? He's already told us in the third chapter in the first and second verses that there's a time for everything and there is a time to die. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Did you know that was in the Bible? You know, most people think a birthday is a wonderful day. Why, yes. A child is born and people send out announcements and congratulations come congratulations come in 
and everybody makes a great ado over it. And then 365 days roll by, and there's a cake with one little candle on it. Everybody's happy. What? It's a birthday. Celebrating a birthday. That goes on and on, year after year. Birthday. Wonderful thing. Well, it is quite a thing, isn't it, friend? After all, we wouldn't be here if we hadn't been born. So it's quite important. But the wise man says that there's something better than the day of one's birth. He doesn't say the day of one's birth isn't good. He just says there's something better than that. What is it? The day of death. No wonder God says his thoughts aren't our thoughts. And I'm going to study that with you, and some of you at least here tonight will agree, before we get through this little study, that there's at least some things about the day of death that are much better than the day of birth. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, this also is vanity. You know, there's something about human life, and especially in this modern 20th century. It wants to keep everything running in a way of laughter and gaiety and mirth, as if that was the great end of life. Some of the highest salaries in this world tonight, friends, are paid to comedians. Did you know that? People to amuse people. Some of those poor fellows have ulcers, too. That's right. They get sick and tired of it themselves. They have to keep it up, for that's the way they earn their money. Now, the wise man, and he had plenty of all that to draw on. He tasted everything this world offered. And he says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. You learn something, he says. You learn something about the meaning of life. Now let's go back to our first verse and see if we can get at the real key, the real germ. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death and the day of one's birth. Those two thoughts are linked together. The good name with the day of death. The name in the Bible, of course, stands for what? Character. And a person who has developed a good character has accomplished the purpose of life. A person whose name is written in the book of life, never to be blotted out, has accomplished the reason for which he was born. To develop that character is the work of a lifetime. It's more than that. It is the work of life to develop that character, that good name that's better than precious ointment. And when that work is completed, when that character is developed, the great purpose of life has been accomplished, my friends, as God views it, then it's bedtime. It's bedtime. 
When everybody in this world has reached that point, we call that the close of what? Close of probation. But do you know that most of the people who have ever lived in this world have had their probation closed by what? Death. And very few people have ever closed their probation till death. Death marks the close of probation for nearly all who have ever lived in this world. Now let's look at the close of probation for a minute. You and I look forward to the close of probation, and we know that at that time he that is unjust will be unjust still, and he that is righteous will be righteous still, don't we? I want to ask you something. When the saints are all numbered and sealed, and probation is closed, would you pray to stay in this world another hundred years? Or fifty years? Or ten years? What would you pray? To get out as quick as possible, is that right? Because the reason for being here has been accomplished. Is that correct? Could that be just as correct with a person that reached that point where God saw that he was ready to close his probation before the world as a whole had closed its probation? Could that be possible? Yes, friends, it could. If Hezekiah had died, when God told him, set your house in order, for your time has come to die. Would Hezekiah have been saved in the kingdom of God? Not only that, would a lot of trouble have been saved to Judah and the kingdom? Oh, yes. I repeat, friends, the great purpose of life is to develop a character, a good name. Now, do you know why that's the great purpose? Well, I'll tell you. Heaven keeps a school, the university of the universe. And God is looking for students to enter that higher course of education. But you must have your credits. You must pass your entrance examinations in this life. And the great purpose of life is to get to the place where you can pass those examinations. That's why we haven't time to spend with a lot of subjects that we can't take with us to the higher school why the spirit of prophecy says that we should weed out of our courses the things that students can't take to the higher school. We need all the time to spend on the things that are required for admission there. Some people are so busy getting the things that are required for admission here, they lose sight altogether of the things that are required for admission there. But now my point is, here's a person. He lives a certain length of life. And all the while, heaven is superintending his education, not merely in books, but in life, for that's what life is. Life is the great preparatory course in the education of eternity. But finally, that individual gets to the place where God, looking upon him, says, he's ready. I can admit him now to the higher school. And God says to that man, I'm ready now for you to close your probationary period. And what difference, my friends? I say this not thoughtlessly nor heartlessly. What difference does it make whether the thing that closes that man's course is an automobile hitting him on the highway or the germ of tuberculosis or cancer 
or any one of 10,000 other things. What difference does it really make? In the great long view of eternity, if he's ready, if heaven's time has come for him to close his schoolwork here, oh, friend, the important thing is this, remember, this is the vital thing in all I'm studying. A man may be ready one time and not ready another time. I think of experiences of men in this movement. I think of Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, one of the most brilliant minds that this denomination ever had. What a worker he was, how much he accomplished, the books he wrote, the lectures he gave, the operations he performed, the sick people he helped, the prayers he offered that were answered, the great humanitarian work he did. There was a time, my friends, when the spirit of prophecy said itself that he was a converted man. That's what it said. It almost seems that it would have been a wonderful thing, friends, if he could have laid down his life when he was in that condition, doesn't it? But no, he lived on and on. He was riding a bicycle at the age of 90 but not toward heaven, my friends. Not toward heaven. And the last decades of his life were spent without the light and hope that this message brings to you and me. I say that it is possible for a man to close his probation at one time and be ready to go to the school of the hereafter. And he may linger on and find himself not only less prepared, not prepared at all. He cannot pass. He's outside the gates. Oh, what a tragedy. Oh, but somebody says, but I wouldn't do that. Oh, brother, you don't know what you do. You don't. The heart is deceitful above all things. If there's anything I long for tonight, friend, and God knows I long for the healing power of the latter rain and the loud cry. There's something I long for tonight ten times more. It is the resignation of my will, the alignment of my will with God's will, that when God says it's bedtime, I'll say, all right, Father, tuck me in, tuck me in. Just wake me in the morning. What do you say? <laughs> and don't for a minute think that this means that we're not going to pray for sick people that they'll get well. No, no. We've prayed through the years that are past and we've seen God heal some of them. He hasn't healed them all and I'm glad he hasn't. And I don't think it's all because people haven't had faith enough or because they weren't good enough or any of those reasons. I think all those things enter in to some experience. But God forbid that you and I should get on the judgment seat and decide what it is that's holding back the healing of this one or that one or the other. Not our business. We'll make poor work of it if we try. What did I read here in volume two? We no longer mark out a way nor seek to bring the Lord to our wishes. If the life of the sick can glorify him, we pray that they may live. Nevertheless, not as we will, but as he will. 
Our faith can be just as firm and more reliable by committing the desire to the all-wise God and without feverish anxiety and perfect confidence, trusting all to him. And on the preceding page, volume 2, 148, comes this matchless sentence. Listen. All that can be done in praying for the sick is to earnestly importune God in their behalf and in perfect confidence rest the matter in his hands. Isn't that nice? Now we're to search our hearts, of course. We're to see if there's any sin. But we are not to have the idea, this is the thing that's important, that if we search our hearts deep enough and repent long enough and plead hard enough, everybody will get well. We're not to have that idea at all. We're not to have the converse of that that goes with it. That if anybody doesn't get well, it's because somebody didn't pray hard enough, because somebody didn't search their hearts deep enough, because somebody wasn't importunate enough. That isn't true, necessarily. Some died in the days of Christ and in the days of the apostles. Why? Because the Lord knew just what was what? best for them. It was bedtime. It was bedtime. I want to turn over now to the fifth chapter of Hebrews. This is such a wonderful subject. I see we're only going to be able to cover part of it, but I think this is quite enough for us to meditate on. But I want to come now to the experience of Jesus himself. Romans, I mean Hebrews, the fifth chapter, and the seventh verse who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. He prayed to God to do what? To do what? Save him from death. Father didn't hear him, did he? What does it say? says he was heard. Who oh, was he? Was his prayer heard? Was it answered? Yes. Now there were two ways God could have answered the prayer. His prayer was to be saved from what? Death. Now God could have answered that prayer by saving him from dying. But God didn't answer his prayer that way. But there was a second way that God could answer his prayer to let him die, but bring him through death so that he comes out living and triumphant on the resurrection morning. That's the way God answered the prayer. Is that correct? Was he saved from death? Sure he was. Yeah. Sure he was. He was saved from death. He's not dead now. Praise his name. He lives forevermore. He was saved from death. As I say this week, I have been face to face with the great enemy. I stood by the side of my dear brother down there in Mississippi. And as I held his hand and read the promises, we prayed together. I tell you, something came into my soul of nearness to the eternal world, more than I felt it in a long time, perhaps ever. I said to him Wednesday evening, as we were meditating there in the twilight, 
I said, you know, doctor, I said, being with you here and looking at the things that you and I have looked at here, it just makes me seem as if we were standing here on the edge of the valley and we look out across the river and right across there is the evergreen shore. There's Jesus and there's the angels because I said, as sure as can be, you are right on the threshold of one of two wonderful things. Either God is going to miraculously heal you by a most outstanding miracle or else you're going to lie down to rest in Jesus' arms and wake up in the resurrection morning, which to you will seem just one minute from the time you go to sleep till you wake up. And as I, as I sit here with you and we look out there, we're looking at those two wonderful things. Wouldn't it be wonderful if God should hear our united prayers and you would get up from this bed perfectly well? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Why? If that's the thing that's going to happen, we're right on the threshold of it, almost as if we could reach out and grasp it. If it's going to come at all, it's going to come right away with that, dear brother. But all I said, if the other wonderful thing happens, then we're right on the edge of that, for you only have a little time longer here. In just a little while, you're going to be lying down in Jesus' arms, and then the next moment, as far as your consciousness is concerned, Wake up and meet Jesus and the angels. And I said, thank God. We just looked right across the valley, right across the river, and there it is. We're going up together to the gates of the city of God. Friends, I think it's a wonderful hope, don't you? <laughs> and honestly, as I told him, and I feel it in my heart tonight as I look at those two things, and it's one or the other when you get that far along the road, of sickness, friends. It either means God's got to reach down his hand and miraculously raise you up, or reach down his hand and smooth the pillow and say good night. I'll see you in the morning. In either way, I say it's wonderful. Wonderful, my friends. Wonderful. To be saved from death as Jesus was. Remember, there's two ways. You can be saved from dying, Go like Enoch went and Elijah, or you can be saved from death as Moses was, as Jesus was. I was about to say you can have your choice. No, that's just exactly what you don't have. God has the choice. God has the choice. And when Paul was looking at it in the first of Philippians, he said, honestly, if I had the choice, I don't know which I'd choose. To remain in the flesh seems to be to be more needful for you. But oh, he says it would be wonderful to depart and to be with Christ. To Paul, it just seemed like one minute from the time he died until Jesus would come. So he said to depart and to be with Christ, overlooking, as it were, the great span of centuries which humanity goes through, but which Paul knows nothing of. It's all one moment from death till the resurrection. Oh, friends, the Christian's hope is a very practical, real thing. Aren't you glad? Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? I know, friends, that death is an enemy, but thank God it's conquered. Now I ought to add this, lest we overlook something vital. 
There are times even when people are perfectly prepared and ready to go that God raises them up and extends their life for the purpose of the work they may do in his cause. And it's a very natural thing for us to think that that's a good reason to urge upon God, and I think it is, friends. I think it's the best reason in the world. But there again, we have to let the Lord decide, don't we? For 6,000 years now, God has been letting people go to rest just when they were had learned something about how to work for him. Did you know that? All the people that started this movement are dead and in their graves, and some of them, oh, wouldn't their counsel be worth a lot now? Wouldn't their leadership be worth a lot? Wouldn't their service be worth a great deal? But if they were here, some of us might be standing by watching them instead of getting in getting the experience ourselves. And so again, I say God knows what he's about. And the greatest thing that you and I can do is to have enough faith in God to believe that he knows better than we do. And to have enough love for him to say, all right, Father, whatever you say is all right. That won't keep us from praying. It'll enable us to pray much more intelligently and much more effectually and effectively. Trusting God's wisdom, we shall be restful. Trusting his love, we shall be obedient. Trusting his almighty power, we shall be delivered from fear, both for ourselves and our loved ones. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.